Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with anthropologist Helga Ingeborg-Virish about a number of things, about sustainability, about the conflict between two visions that uh, Charles Mann talks about in The Wizard and the Prophet, between those who say that we need to go back to some sort of pastoral or hunter-gatherer past, and those who say that technology can continue to save us as it has in the past. Very fascinating conversation. Helga has done extensive field research in the Kalahari Desert in Africa, and she has a lot of insights into what is possible for hunter-gatherer groups. And the question, as I'm sure you'll see, I am putting to her in many different ways is, um, is this a scaling issue? Can these lessons that we learn from hunter-gatherers uh, can they tell us something about what human nature is like in a densely populated city or suburb? Or is it true that what you see there applies only to humans in very thinly populated areas? But anyway, before we get into the conversation with Helga, I uh, just want to talk a little bit housekeeping issues. If you would like to support the podcast, uh, please go to uh, www.patreon.com um, and put in Likeville Podcast. Uh, it costs us money to make these uh, these discussions, make these podcasts, and we could very much use your support. If you think this kind of content is worthwhile to have on the internet, where you have long-form discussions about important issues which aren't driven by gotcha journalism or some debate or pigeonholing everybody into uh, this political stripe or that. Uh, if you think that kind of civil, intelligent, long-form conversation is worthwhile, well, uh, please support it. Um, if you cannot support it financially because you're, <laughs> you're a poor student or something like that, uh, then you, there's other ways you can support the podcast. Uh, the title of the Facebook group is just like Phil. So if you type that into the search bar, you should find it. We put out a lot of new information about uh, upcoming podcasts. You can submit questions that we will be sure to ask future guests. Um, also, the Likeville Twitter handle is at the Likeville pod. Um, it had to be shortened because of the character limits. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. We also tend to put out a lot of information about what's happening in future interviews there. Um, as you know, our main streaming location for the moment is on iTunes. However, if you aren't a big fan of Apple, I know many of you have a problem with Apple, uh, you can listen to the podcast on overcast.fm. Uh, you can just go to overcast.fm and then type in Likeville and it'll all pop up. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Elsa's Bar in Plata Montreal. It's a wonderful place. If you live in Montreal, you know this. It's a neighborhood place that people talk about all the time. If you're going to be in Montreal, highly recommend you check out Elsa's. It's on Roy Street in Plata Montreal. Fantastic place. This episode is also brought to you by Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian is a professional fine art photographer who is offering private online one-on-one -on -one classes for those who want to drastically improve their skills in photography. And so he will show you completely how to use 
the camera, all the the, sort of the mechanics of of how to do it. He'll show you, teach you about light, about all these things. He'll also show you how to edit your photographs after to get them to be, you know, their absolute best. So, and he's a fantastic teacher. If you go online, you can find all sorts of testimonials uh, attesting to that fact. This podcast is also brought to you by Good Mix, which is a fantastic organic paleo granola mix that you put inside yogurt and you have in the morning and it's incredibly virtuous and very tasty and it just fills you up for hours and hours it's like a superfood and it does fantastic things for your digestion highly recommend this stuff and the podcast is also brought to you by our patreon supporters all right without further ado i give you helga ingeborg virich Welcome to the Legfield Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with Helga. How do you pronounce it? I've never been able to. Is it Virich? Virich? Virich or Virich? You know, Virich. I don't know. Virich. <laughs> Helga Virich, yeah. an anthropologist and all around fascinating person. So uh, I'm just going to jump right in on this. I, I was interviewing uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb the other day, and he mentioned something in passing and I immediately thought of you and I thought, well, this is sort of a solution to a problem that sort of Helga has been talking about a lot. And he, it it was a study of, and I'm blanking on the names, the woman's name, but I went and actually looked at it after I talked to him, but it was a study of fisherman culture. And what they found is that when you have a certain number when you have a small fishing community they don't overfish they just they they sort of monitor themselves but when you get above a certain size then you have sort of the tragedy of the commons type situation and you have people overfishing because they feel like you know there's so many people in the water i need to get mine to feed my family and take care of myself and so suddenly people are not thinking about the good of the ecosystem or the good of the the fishing community as a whole, they're just thinking, well, I just need to grab, you know, what's what's mine as quickly as possible. And so he, his point was that you know, a lot of the problems that we talk about are not so much a problem of human nature, they're a scaling problem, right? So now my follow-up question to you about that, well, I want to get your reaction to that, but also you've done a lot of really intense research where you've gone and lived with communities with hunter-gatherer communities and these are obviously on a small scale right Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering uh what is the what can we learn from these communities given the fact that they're so small and we live in something that's completely different so all right helga (laughs) okay well first of all is is my sound okay oh it's perfect yeah oh excellent all right um first of all uh the notion of density is quite important here okay um, density and and that of course pertains to the size of the community that is using the resource base right so <clears throat> it makes sense that if you have a very large dense <clears throat> community a sedentary community a village of you know 10,000 people um, you're going to require 
<clears throat> a bigger resource base. You're going to need more access to more water if you're a fisherman. You're going to have to have much bigger access to a much larger area of forests for building your houses if you're going to use wood. You're going to need um, a much larger arable area if you are um, producing crops for your main food sources. So all of your material wants, as well as all of your food and water and so on, is, is going to increase in area when you have a large concentrated population. Okay. okay. Now, the, reason, the reason I bring that up is because uh, there are people who argue that cities are much more ecologically sound because they concentrate human populations and then the countryside can be sort of free of, you know, human interference. That's and pretty that's much the like the official environmentalist uh, move. Like David Suzuki has ex talked extensively about how the the real environmental solution is not back to the land people it's actually get you know get the hell off the land and leave it alone let it go wild in many places and that we have to have uh, cities that are more like Tokyo that are incredibly high where we build where we can have um, a lot of density so that we're not uh, you know covering all the fields with concrete and having suburban sprawl and all that stuff so yeah I mean that, that's like the official sort of uh, I, I don't know any environmentalists that are on the other side anymore. It used to be kind of split half and half, but well, look at E.O. Wilson with his recent call to leave. What was it? A third or a half of the planet to what he calls nature. You can put a capital N on that. Mm -hmm. In other words, just exclude people. Right. That's the idea. And this, this uh, view and the view espoused by uh, many environmentalists like David Suzuki now does not is not scientifically borne out okay, okay. And the, the reason is because we are the gardeners of Eden mm -hmm. you know we are the people we are the the species that essentially shaped all the ecosystems uh, on the planet and mm -hmm. we, we did North America and uh, a bit later than everywhere else but we imported when we left the little tiny squirt of humans that that proje got projected out of Africa during the the last you know 70 80 I think it's probably more like 120,000 years perhaps even more but anyway that little minority that uh, formed this uh, coastal culture along the East African and Southeast African coast during the great mega droughts uh, that hit Africa sort of, I mean, we know of ones that were very, very severe between like four or five times between 134,000, oh, mm -hmm. sorry, 148,000 and uh, about 74,000 years ago. Okay, and these were not like ordinary droughts. These are not even droughts that you can even imagine. These are droughts that left, you know, uh, Lake Malawi in Africa? That's one mm -hmm. of the deepest lakes in Africa, I think it's actually one of the deepest lakes, you know, that we know of, that lake was reduced to a kind of um, death valley with brackish little mud puddles here and there. It lost like 99% of its water. That's how severe these droughts were, and they lasted. 
you know, 10,000. In some cases, they think it might be as much as 20,000 years. Now, think about that. Where did humans originate? And what level of uh, adaptation were we at at the time when this was going on? Mm -hmm. And what we do know is that we had a, humans were spread all through Africa and all through Eurasia. We know that. And we know that they were very smart, that they already probably had boats or some kind of float technology to get out to islands. We know that they had, you know, I mean, there's still some fuss about this, but, um, you know, I've looked at all the, the archaeological data and the paleontological data, and, and, and now with this latest discovery of a 700,000-year-old uh, human, uh, like I think it was a rhinoceros hunt or something in the Philippines. Wow. That's, yeah, that was just in the last couple of months. I, I didn't see that. I, didn't, I mean, I read, uh, I one of the people that I really like is Charles C. Mann, and I read mm -hmm. his 1491 Yes. which is just fascinating. And he, he sort of advances this, um, an accessible, popularized version of the thesis you're talking about and how the the Amazon, you know, which we look at and people thought, oh, this is just exactly what E.O. Wilson wants, right? Untrammeled wilderness, you know, without human beings whatsoever. And uh, he said, actually, you're looking at the remnants of a massive ancient garden, Mm -hmm. that uh, yeah. humans were specifically taking care of uh, certain nut trees and fruit trees that were good mm -hmm. for them. And were, you're looking at basically a, an overgrown orchard in mm -hmm. a farming region that, that went bust, you know? Like, and this is, it, listen, this is true all over the world, except maybe the Arctic, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you have trees where you have plant species that are very, very important for subsistence for hunter-gatherers, okay? Mm -hmm. We're talking like, you know, up to the Neolithic Revolution and the domestication of plants and animals, okay? And when we, re, when we shuffle it around in our minds and, and rethink that paradigm, of this kind of pristine wilderness where human beings were just kind of running around gathering the wild stuff and living off it and uh, not very well according to a lot of models and were, were kind of dumb dumb people who didn't even know that they could you know domesticate plants or that they would grow if they if they put seeds or tubers in the ground they aren't they weren't that that mm -hmm. isn't how humans you know yeah. hunter gatherers all know this they know this already I mean, I watched them. I watched them replant the nuts and the, uh, the the really important berries and some of the trees that they valued in the Kalahari. I watched them. Yeah. You know? And women walking away. I, I went on maybe, um, I don't know, altogether, but, you know, maybe two dozen gathering trips with women. I didn't like to impose too much and go and ask to go, so I only went when I was asked. And I think that was the right thing to do because I noticed that sometimes they wanted to discuss stuff. Like they wanted to discuss their marriages or their husbands or some gossip that they mm -hmm. really were discussing in front of me, right? So, you know, you, you, you let a group of the, these very close female friends go off together when they have something to discuss and you don't ask to go along, right? Mm -hmm. so I have, shall we say, a limited sample of observations of this, but in probably 80% of these trips, I noticed two things. One is I noticed women, as we were leaving, for instance, a, 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 
stand of wild berries or of the very important marama nuts, which by the way are very tasty, which is a ground living tuber, uh, uh, leguminous plant, okay, and it produces these hard, hard um, nut, nutty type uh, beans, which they then roast and crack and they're wonderful. Anyway, so as we're leaving these stands of various kinds of very nice berries or nuts, the women will sometimes casually remove a handful of these and just drop one here as, they, as we're like we're like a mile away right you drop one here heal it into the ground drop one there heal it into the ground and and you know it, it's not it, it's it's not always going to you know give rise to a new stand it's not always going to you know uh, germinate of course but think of that you know how oh many yeah i mean all all it takes is one to work you know, every couple of years to have a dramatic long-term effect on an ecosystem. I estimated yeah. once that if if these women were just uh, each trip producing maybe six new plants, right? And if they have two or three trips a week, and if you think, okay, so how many women did I know who were gathering the whole time in this population? So I, I took it back and I said, okay, let's just estimate 100 women over a hundred years in this little population that's just a blank estimate they would if, if only if only if only half of those became new plants they would have they would have planted over 10 million okay yeah. and that's the lowest estimate where you know if I had tried the highest it would have been hundreds of millions of new food plants generated and redistributed over the whole landscape yeah the no, they, these symbiotic relationships are amazing it's it's sort of like if you imagine a squirrel that had a really good memory mm -hmm. and would mm -hmm. never would remember every single place that he buried his nuts that would be terrible for the environment because <laughs> we need them to to plant a bury a whole bunch of nuts that they forget about <laughs> like well that's the thing yeah, you know this is humans doing it consciously yeah, amazing. And consciously now let I'll tell you the second thing I noticed, right? And this is unconsciously. It's a kind of careless sloppiness, okay? These women would also dig up tubers. That was a very highly prized food, right? So when they saw a stand of plants that would have these tubers, they'd go to the young ones because the older tubers were huge and hard to carry and all the rest of it, and sometimes a little more tough, as you can imagine, right? So yeah. every time they set down their whole big leather bag, their carosses, uh, full of all this other stuff that they've already gathered, and they plunk it down on the ground, they go dig, right? And what I noticed, especially as it was getting towards the end of the gathering session, you know, after like an hour mm -hmm. or two, that there would be a little scruff of, of nuts and berries and things like that that just sort of split, splattered out of the bag, at the edge of the bag, okay? Yeah. And I was trying to be helpful at first. I would go, oh, goodness, right? Down You're trying to be all efficient. Put it back, right? And the women laughed at me. They said, oh, don't worry about that. You know? And part of it is because they always overgather. You know, like they, they try to fill their cross as full as they can possibly carry. Some of these women were literally carrying, like, this is, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but they had like 50 pounds. You know, like it was 25 kilo 
Wow. I know. I weighed and measured. And these women, they had a tump line across their foreheads. And so they were straining. By the time that we got back into camp, they were sweating and they were exhausted. But they had these big grins on their face and they plonked these big packages down. And they, you know, and they just went and rested. And all the other people, like the older women, in some cases it would be the younger women if the older women were gathering that day. But anyway, they would switch roles, right? Whoever was in camp, the men and the women, would would sometimes come forward, and then they'd get the fire going a little hotter, and then they cook a meal really fast for everybody from all these gathered foods. Like each household, you know, like if it was a husband who was home with his kids. And his wife showed up, and you know he's got three kids, you know, aged eleven, five, and whatever. Some little guy. The little guy, of course, would go immediately as mom lay down or sat down with a big sigh. He'd immediately go to her and nurse. Then the other two kids would help their dad get the fire going, and they'd cook a whole bunch of this stuff up, and everybody would have a snack right away. Wow. And that was an observable pattern over and over. Now what these women did most of the time, and I asked them about this, and it was a strategy. They said, oh yeah, I know, we're tired, but this way we don't have to go out tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's human nature, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, okay, tomorrow I can rest in camp. They were very strong. <laughs> that's all they could say. <laughs> you know? And there were times when it was more fun. You know, and I, I think I talked about this um, in a paper once, but anyway, I'll just describe it. There's a kind of a worm, it's called the, the uh, monato worm, and it's similar to the so-called mo, 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 mopani worm, which you see in the northern part of Botswana. This one was monato, it grew on nato trees, which are a subspecies of the trees in the north, and it ate the leaves, right, and it burrowed in the ground during the day, and then it would, it would scurry up these trees at dawn, and and feed and then go so, back down. So is this uh, the monato worm? Is this like a basically a caterpillar? Yeah, it's a great big fat grub. Okay. And it produces a, it produces a, a God a monato. I, I'll have to I'll have to send you a picture of the the grub and the and the resulting uh, insect. But anyway, so this great big fat grub. I mean, these are like the size of your. They're they're a bit longer. Well, I guess you're you've got a man's thumb, so it'd be about size, <laughs> right? But they're good size. They're like these witchetty grubs that they eat in Australia, anyway. So, so on a day when we were going to go get these grubs, when we knew that it was the season when they were already fat and it was time to gather them, they had actually camped close enough that they could make a day excursion of it, and everybody went. Even the little kids, like we all went. They borrowed like all the old little, you know, cans of stuff that I brought with me. Everybody asked me for cans, and every bucket, every everything that they could use to carry anything was taken along. In fact, that was the one time that women specifically told me to bring my 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 camera bag without the camera. Okay. <laughs> So, yeah. all right, so you can imagine this. So we get to this grove, and everybody is running around. The kids are all screaming and squealing and having great fun trying to catch these wiggly grubs. And they're, they're filling all these containers, right? And, the, of course, the, these grubs are going like, oh, what are you doing to us? And they're trying to crawl. <laughs> and so everybody's packing them back in and, and trying, to, trying to keep them oh in. Oh, my the God, I, I just I found a picture of them online. Oh, yeah. my God. 
That's crazy. Yeah. They say and they taste like chicken and they <laughs> amazing. No, it's like shrimp. Anyway, so so then we hear hightail it back to camp, you know, like as, as basically everybody's walking like a maniac, you know, but not run, running because you've got three-year-olds and stuff with us. Some people are carrying little babies. And so and so we're all and and the kids are the kids have their little their little fat cans full of these things and they're keeping their hands over them and then they're going around and they're helping other people by picking taking grubs which are climbing down your basket or your you know your bucket or your in my case my camera case and stuffing them back in and it's just like a circus and so we're all laughing uproariously and we get back to camp and everybody puts down their grub collection right mm -hmm. and Fires have been built up before this, and they're, they're sort of down to, you know, hot coals, red glowing, all this kind of stuff. And everybody gets this ready. You clear the coals to the hot, hot sand underneath, and you, they just threw bucket loads of these grubs right on the sand. And, of course, the poor grubs, they go like, Ugh! all of a sudden, they're very <laughs> stiff, you know. I don't know, you know, or like a sudden death, you know, and then they, 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 they straighten out and become very stiff. And, you know, they're turned over a little bit and then they're done, right? And then, uh, you know, this is done over and over and over again. And the, 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 the cooked grubs are collected in the baskets and all the other stuff that people have ready. And then the feast begins. Even while grubs are still being cooked on these open fires, everybody's eating as fast as they can. <laughs> that everybody looks forward to. And it's like shrimp. And, you know, to tell you the truth, I, I had a little thought. I thought, oh, what about the intestines of these grubs? What's inside those? And should I be eating this? But everybody else was, so I did. And I figured in the end that whatever, you know, digestive stuff, you know, was in their tummies and dice. Do insects have stomachs? But anyway, yeah. uh, you know, whatever was in there was okay. <laughs> so <laughs> these things, like I, I bit the little shiny black, you know, eyes and head off, you know, the little mouthpiece. And almost everybody did that. You know, they'd bite the head off and then they'd eat the whole grub. But, you know, this is no worse uh, than eating a shrimp. You've cooked yeah. it, stiff and dead, and you peel the, 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 you know, the carapace off it and take the legs off, and then you eat the... <laughs> <laughs> and it's no yeah. different. Right, people are going. Oh, how could you do that? Yeah, well, I did. I did a Google search on it after you mentioned it. And yeah, there's right. all these different recipes. Yeah. Oh, like it's how to, and they tell you you actually remove the guts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. How to like eat them? So, yeah, this well, is amazing. I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, Sereti Kama, who was the past president, he was the president of Botswana when I was there, and he had been, I think, to he'd been trained in England. Uh, I think he was a lawyer, but I may be wrong. I mean, maybe he was at the London School of Economics. But anyway, wherever he was, I think it was law. He married his English receptionist or secretary named Ruth, right? So Ruth came to Botswana, and she was then the mother of the guy who succeeded Suretsi Kama. I can't remember what his name is now, but but as the next, not only chief of the Bamanguado, but also... Um, uh, the chief, the the president of the country, okay. Mm -hmm. So here they are, you know, in Habaroni, which is the president, the 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 capital of Botswana, and Ruth has one thing that she cannot abide, and it's <laughs> right. 
So, so, so her husband would go out and he'd score a bunch of these at the local market because they're, you know, they're sold everywhere too, right? And he'd he'd stuff his pockets and he'd get back and he'd be in his office or in the cabinet meeting or whatever it is, passing out these cards. And once in a while, there was this huge, this huge gossip thing would spread around the the capital about how Ruth found grubs in his pocket again. <laughs> you know, and it's you know, like, oh, it's, that's hilarious. I know it is. It is. Yeah. Anyway, it's but, like me with sardines. Like I, I just, Annalisa can't stand the smell yeah. of sardines, and she really hates it when it's on my breath. So whenever she goes <laughs> away, I buy a bunch of sardines, and I'm like, you know, this is like, I guess what other guys would, you know, mm-hmm. have like pornography or something. I'm like yeah. eating sardines, like, <laughs> I know. stuffing and my face, right? So this guy's eating grubs. That, that fill you with happiness, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's eating grubs. That's his naughty food. Yeah. That's amazing. And you know, they're nice with a little salt. Anyway, so, okay, so let's get back to the other thing. Uh, I was, you you mentioned Michael C. Mann. Yeah. And I, I Char- was, Charles C. Mann, yeah. Charles C. Mann, I'm yeah. sorry. Climate change is all mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so the thing is that that the other thing that I noticed when I was gathering with these women was that they would also throw down these very tasty uh, types of berries. Um, it's a, uh, there's a whole series of, of berries that are like currants and blackberries and, and um, you know, uh, Saskatoons and stuff like that on various trees and there's wild plums and all of this would get distributed. And one of the things I noticed was when, when people camped, right? Mm-hmm. They camp near one of the stands that like they would they would call it grandmother's stand because it was their grandmother who had very likely seeded those so the children the children i remember interviewing and i was hearing all this laughter and screaming and it was quite distant it was like you know 300 yards away and i asked the the lady the granny that i was interviewing i said are they okay out there they seem pretty far from camp and she said, oh, they're in the berry bushes. They're pretending to be gathering adults, you know, like uh, adults <laughs> gathering food. The little girls, that's what was happening. And so they were practicing, right? And wow. they came back into camp with these little, these little um, bundles in, in skin bags of fruits. And, you know, they, they didn't even have to cook those, right? So and then they'd sit around giggling and eating all of this, saying, you know, essentially now we know how to be grown-ups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It was very sweet. But, you know, it gave children a, uh, something to do, something to practice, the familiarity. And you know what? Every culture on the planet does this. Children go out and gather wild berries. You notice that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all did it, you know? Like, I gathered wild berries with a bunch of little friends up in North Bay, Ontario, in the suburb where I grew up behind it was still you know wilderness i mean it was all this granite outcrops covered in blueberries right yeah. and we go out there and i can't remember how many times we saw bears <laughs> you know <laughs> and it was just like oh, okay it's a bear all right well let's just go the other way and nobody was panicking about it well when these little kids go out and and do this because they're quite close to the camp the the lions and the hyenas and you know leopards and stuff like that very rarely bother them because it's it's sort of understood that this is there's a human camp here and it's best not to not to do anything i also was really surprised at how little uh fear 
and avoidance most of the game showed when we were walking around the countryside like this. And I asked the hunters about it. And you probably you probably remember this from the the um, 1491 book uh, by by Charles Seaman that the game was was treated in such a way that it did not have excessive fear of humans. They could be better managed that way, right? And they were hunted. You know, the most of the North American uh, hunter gatherers used uh, bows and arrows. Mm-hmm. Just think about what a bow is. It's it's a it's a it's a you know it can be a death dealing delivery system, right, of a of a of a lethal wound, but it's quiet, mm-hmm. and it can strike from a great distance. Mm-hmm. Okay, relatively great distance. Okay, so the animal, like you're you know, say you're walking through the woodland and and uh, you know a hundred yards away there's some gazelle grazing or something like that. So you very quietly remove your bow and you take aim at one of them, and if you're lucky, uh, you'll you'll hit it. Okay. Mm-hmm. The animals, the, the I don't know if you've ever seen a, a bow that that of the kind that's used by bushmen in the Kalahari, but they're tiny. They're 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 like a little dart. You know. They're, really. They're, and the trick is that they have very, very strong nerve poison applied. Oh, wow. Okay. So what happens is, and I've seen this, that the animal that's hit goes, oh, what was that? You know? And then quite often the, 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 the arrow might penetrate the skin and there might be a little blood, but the animal uh, will move and look around and, and maybe even, uh, you know, pull the arrow out with its mouth. And it, it, it drops it. Sometimes it drops, the, the arrow hits and then drops off, you know, just right there. Anyway, the animal isn't badly hurt. It's a tiny little wound. It's like it's been bitten by a sharp stick or something, right? And so then the other animals aren't that disturbed. And most importantly, they don't usually connect what just happened with the presence of a human being 100 yards away in some bush. Mm-hmm. Okay. What this means is that they, that unlike what happens when you hunt with spears and dogs and guns, which is noisy and obvious, right? Unlike that, they don't make the connection, and so they don't have a very long flight distance. Huh. So they actually, you know, are not that frightened of humans. And this, this is another thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about hunting and gathering. Having some people gathering all over, all the time in a particular area where they happen to be camped for like six weeks or something versus having hunters go out means that when animals see a group of humans wandering around, they, wa- they may watch them for a while, but what they see is these animals are essentially interacting with the plants. Yeah. Like, the other, you know, harmless beastie, right? So they become accustomed to human presence in a in a way that that doesn't scare them. Huh. And what? And then when the hunter goes out, even if it's two hunters together, and they're they're very very quiet, and they they just, you know, they they almost the the, the one guy told me the the idea is to act unconcerned, and and they did. They they would they would be like browsing. They'd be picking. Lee, not leaves necessarily, but you know, if there was a, there were berries in a bush, and they were watching some animals a hundred yards away, they'd be eating these berries. If the animals noticed them, they start eating these berries, and the animals go, "Oh, it's just more humans, right?" Yeah. 
So at that point, you have an animal that you can get quite close to. And you can kill it, or rather you can uh, start its uh, demise in a way that is not going to connect the, the animals who remain behind. They're not going to make the connection, sorry, uh, between the hunter and, and the eventual uh, fact that this uh, animal that had the pinprick wandered off and went to lie down somewhere. They don't figure, they don't out, figure the, out the causation. Yeah. They, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the thing is that animals, it takes many, many, I think there was an estimate recently, it takes about seven generations for, for a prey species to lose what they call its predator fear. Okay, huh. because information about how dangerous a certain creature is when it appears before you, that information is transmitted to the young. That's why, you know, animals learn from their mothers, right? Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily an instinctive thing, uh, particularly with larger predators. You know, you can, you can actually have um, uh, rabbits become friends with dogs, whereas wolves and bunnies naturally are, you know, <laughs> that's not going to be the I'm case. Actually, I'm hearing my voice in your, uh, I'm hearing myself in yours, I think uh, maybe you can turn the, the volume down, or it's weird, it's just all of a sudden I started hearing you in the back, myself in the background, <laughs> Oh. on your end. Oh, uh, it looks like it's gone now. Is that better? What? Yeah, it's all gone. That was so weird. It just suddenly I was hearing... My uh, like okay. a reverb or something. It was odd. Yeah. Uh, but so I, I take it from what you're saying here that you don't buy into the the sort of theory that humans um, exterminated most of the megafauna on all the different continents. You don't you don't buy into that. No, I I I think what happened more likely is that human beings, because of the way that they affect their ecosystems. Um, they are a kind of um, keystone species because they're ecological engineers. Okay, what that means is that they, um, uh, for instance, uh, the hunter-gatherers um, that I was with, as well as hunter-gatherers almost all around the world that have been studied, they will set little fires throughout their environment, mm -hmm. and part of the reason for that is because, um, well, there are three, but anyways, uh, the main one is that. That prevents really, really dangerous wildfires. Because they're doing is they're creating a mosaic where some of the area has very little fuel in it. Mm -hmm. okay? And so even if a, a lightning strike starts a fire, it's that fire is going to run out of fuel pretty quickly. Okay. There's not going to be these vast amounts of dried vegetation for that fire to consume and become actually dangerous to the human beings in that environment or to the animals. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, Charles C. Mann talks about this a great deal. So does uh, Yuval Harari and Sapiens and Homo Deus. Mm -hmm. the, the practice of burning, that's uh, mm -hmm. that's well known. But I guess the, the confusion that I have is that everything that I've read and looked at, it looks like the, the idea that we hunted a lot mm -hmm. of the megafauna, it fits a lot of the, the facts and it fits some strange facts. Like for instance, the, the fact that the mammoth, there were still mammoths for thousands of years mm -hmm. on a couple of large islands in the Arctic. And surprise, surprise, mm -hmm. these are the islands where humans hadn't arrived yet. And as soon as you see human artifacts on that island, 
bam, the mammoth are gone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me let me let me see if I can if I can add some context and a more holistic view to that. Okay. Um, what one th one fact that you have to remember is that mammoths and much of the megafauna in Eurasia survived despite almost a million years of hunter-gatherer presence. Homo erectus was there. Neanderthals were there. This this Denisovan uh, population was in the eastern part of the Eurasian continent, and there were other um, populations of what we call archaic Homo in Africa. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's one fact. So if it's just a function of the way of of having hunting humans around, why didn't they exterminate them earlier? Hmm. Okay. All right. The second thing is that it is modern human hunter-gatherers who apparently hunt in this way that I was describing. Uh, I call it distance hunting. Okay, and 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 they also do this environmental manipulation, ecological engineering, through the use of burning. Okay, there is no evidence whatsoever that the other archaic. Uh, sort of skeletally archaic um, uh, groups of humans in Eurasia or Africa ever did this. Mm -hmm. Okay, now just think what what we know about ecology, ecological systems. Um, <clears throat> when when you look at a pattern of burning, the way that hunter gatherers do it it actually changes the species composition, not only of animals you know, but of the plants upon which, you know, they're dependent, the communities of plants become much more diverse and the amount of plant matter that is in what we call secondary growth is increased. Okay? You get more berries, you get more open grasslands and meadows where yeah. you everything down. You get more um, species like sp specific species of ungulates which feed on lower bushes, you know, do a lot of browsing and so on, as well as grazing in these secondary growth areas. Um, in other words, what humans, what modern humans did when they, the ones that left, uh, you know, radiated out from Africa after, I don't know, uh, 100,000 years ago, in probably in, in small waves at first, but eventually in as kind of tidal in a way because of just population growth along the coast, they changed the ecology. They changed the proportions of different ecosystems in their environment through their practices. Now that, I think, if you, if you think about it enough, that might have been enough to reduce the vital habitat of certain megafauna uh, to the point where they're, they just got too low in numbers and went extinct. Huh. This is not, it's not a crazy theory. Um, and, you know, the second sort of um, aspect that I want to add to that is that in Africa, where I was, we had megafauna. These people were living with giraffes and big buffalo. <laughs> and, you know, they were in, not in the area where I happen to be uh, anymore, but there were rhinos in the Kalahari, there's elephants, there's giraffes, you know, and there's large, large mammal fauna 
it has one of, it had at the time that I was there one of the the, the highest um, biomass and diversity of mam mammal fauna on the planet. Hmm. Okay, they'd been there for you know I don't know a hundred thousand years at least. <laughs> you know, off and on, right? So why weren't the giraffes and elephants wiped out in in Africa before people went off to wipe them out in Eurasia and North America? It doesn't yeah. make well, the the theory that I've heard to respond to that is that because we evolved out of Africa, the animals in Africa had plenty of time to sort of learn how to deal with us and to sort of co-evolve with us. And the pla the places where we had the most devastating effect uh, are places like Australia or places like the, you know, well, the Galapagos, places where we were... We showed up, and the animals there didn't have nearly enough time. We were very good at coming up with new hunting techniques, which we could pass on through language and culture, which gives us an incredible advantage over everything else in our ecosystem if we actually use that that sort of information. Yeah. But uh, they didn't have enough time to evolve in a way to respond and so that's what happened and so the, the argument i've heard that the reason why you still have a lot of the megafauna in uh, in africa is precisely because they had a they had a long time to respond to the mm -hmm. the, the development of us right <laughs> well you know I, I yeah i've heard that i i used to actually i mean i took a lot of courses in archaeology as well and and i i heard i read uh, many of these theories about what happened and that all changed when I did field work mm -hmm. what I think it was I think it was the opposite I think it was that there's a certain amount of time that human beings need in an, in an ecosystem to understand the complexity of it the interrelationships in it and to adjust their practices accordingly it's mm -hmm. not the they have to learn it's us Okay, now I I related this. I don't know if I if I talked about it with you before, but I've I've have said it to a number of people uh, online and so on. And I'm I've it's it's a part of the book that I'm writing. When I was in the Kalahari, um, I don't know if you've ever seen a film by John Marshall called The Hunters. No. In that, in that no. film, he recorded he filmed a group of Bushmen men who shot with an arrow and, and so on, a giraffe, and followed it by tracking it across the landscape. And then when it was tired and cornered, and I guess the arrow poison might have had some effect, they, uh, they brought it down and slaughtered it. And that was a very, very iconic film. And I saw it when I was an undergraduate. So when I got to the Kalahari and I was settling in among the Kwa and learning the language and you know watching everything, I saw plenty of giraffes. I never saw them hunted. I asked about this. I said, well, you know, I mean, so don't you ever hunt the giraffe? Or what about the eland? They were hardly ever hunting the eland either. Huh. And somebody, somebody explained to me that um, they wouldn't refuse an animal that offered itself, like that sort of stood there and <laughs> brought signs. <laughs> they were fully armed with an arrow. But that uh, rarely happened, and it wasn't God's will. And besides... God God had put the giraffe there for a purpose. And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, like a dumb question. That's the purpose of anthropologists, to go to, go to some place and ask all the dumb, obvious questions. 
Anyway, they, they referred me. They said, go talk to this, this woman. They named her, and they told me where to find her. And after a few more weeks, I eventually got around to visiting her camp, and I sat down with her, and my, my introductory remarks were, so tell me about giraffes. Because what I had heard was that she was, from a young age, just a, obsessed with giraffes. She really liked them. She wanted to know more about them. She was always looking at them. She was always discussing them. She drove everybody nuts on the <laughs> subject of giraffes. It was just her thing. It was her little, you know, the thing that she was, she probably would have been a brilliant wildlife biologist if she'd grown up. <laughs> anyway, so so I said, okay, so you know, tell me about giraffes. Why don't why don't you approve of of you know your your people hunting giraffes? And she gave me this very very wise look. In fact, I don't know, is that like a Mr. Magoo look? And then she said, ah, it's because the giraffe is the midwife of the acacia. What's the acacia? Well, if you've seen pictures of the Kalahari, they're these big sort of umbrella-shaped trees with a sort of fan out. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Over, you know, and you see them all over Africa. They're woody trees. They're long-lived, and they're found in semi-arid areas. Yeah, it's like the iconic African tree sort of That's in right. pictures. Yeah. Big, flat top tree. Yeah. Very tall. Okay. So I go like, what do you mean? <laughs> okay, obvious question. And so she said, well, the giraffe is the animal that is tall enough to have specialized. Well, she didn't say specialized, but, you know, I took that as for granted. It's the animal mage is what she said. It was made by God to be tall enough to browse on the leaves and pods of the acacia. And the acacia babies, in other words, the, the seeds in the pods, pass through the, the midwife, the giraffe, and since giraffes have very large territories, they, you know, they were deposited all over the landscape at very big distances from the parent tree. That is wild. Okay. All right. So I'm listening to this, and, you know, she said she had, of course, with her obsession, she had actually noticed young acacias sprouting from a place where uh, a giraffe had left a dung heap. That is and just here, nuts. Rational data. Plus, it turned out she repeated for me some mythology, some some collected folk wisdom that had been passed down to her. And I guess she had always asked people for stories about giraffes, even if they were, you know, like old mythology and sacred stories and so on. So she said that everything fit. Everything fit. So, you know, at the time, I just thought, well, this is really funny. Right? <laughs> but then, you know what? I looked it up when I got back. And here's the deal. These acacias are legumes. They fix nitrogen. They have a symbiotic relationship with bacteria which live in their root area. Mm -hmm. Those bacteria fix nitrogen. Okay, now in semi-arid soils, particularly in sandy semi-arid soils, soils that, that used to be big sand dunes during the mega droughts in Africa, those legumes uh, do a vital thing. They make those soils more fertile and they open up these areas to colonization by other kinds of plants that aren't legumes, so grasses can grow there. So, you know, berry bushes of various kinds, so vegetative plants and, and, and tasty root plants can grow there, okay? They make the desert into a, into a, a savanna. 
That is wild. Wild, I know. Yeah. And you know what? I, I have discovered that there is actually research going on in Australia, for instance, about planting some of the native Australian uh, legumes, which are a kind of acacia, you know, a little thorny tree with the, those that kind of frond and pod and everything, interplanted with food crops to keep the fertility up because they 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 uh, make it unnecessary to apply chemical fertilizer because that's just nitrogen, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's it's artificial chemical fertilizer. Most of the constituent is 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 nitrogen. That's what's usually lacking in. Yeah. Well, soils. So, you know, this is actually be, uh, a subject which the um, various institutes of agricultural research in, in semi-arid uh, areas, in the, particularly in the tropics, are becoming aware of. And of course, the North American uh, native people who started to grow uh, plants, you know, and domesticate plants like the Iroquois, they had the three sisters. Beans, mm -hmm. which is a nitrogen fixer, Growing with the corn, which is a heavy nitrogen user, and also growing with the um, pumpkins and, and squashes. Yeah. Right? So the, uh, the, the, the descriptions the in Samuel de Champlain's uh, diaries, like the descriptions that he has of going to Huronia and mm -hmm. just the really dense populations, you know, big, big area, mm -hmm. like they were able to support. Mm -hmm. These large populations, and he talks about just walking through fields yep. and fields of pumpkins and all different kinds of squashes and corn. And then mm -hmm. they had, he estimated that they had uh, enough grain stores and food in various like caves and other places to last uh, for a couple of years. That they were just, they were really, really set up despite the fact that they were, you know, in what is now kind of central Ontario. It's not exactly the most you know, easy environment to survive in. It gets cold. No. <laughs> yeah, and they, they had turned it into this cornucopia of just amazing amount of food, right? It's fascinating. I know. And the same thing was done in the Amazon. The same thing was done in uh, West Africa. You know, I, I don't know if you were aware of this, but after I finished my, my PhD thesis, in fact, before I finished it, <laughs> I um I I got hired and eagerly accepted a job with a Green Revolution Institute. Oh wow. <laughs> to go to West Africa and study farming systems there. And I wanted to do two things. That's why I accepted this job. <clears throat> One is I wanted to understand the Green Revolution, the what they were promoting, how it worked. And what was the effect on local indigenous agricultural systems and on their society? Because there had been some hints that it created more social stratification. Right? And I, you know, I was a bit concerned with this, but I also just deeply, deeply wanted to understand what caused people to shift from being, you know, foragers mm -hmm. to being... Uh, the, to domesticating plants and becoming farmers and, 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 and pastoralists. And so in West Africa, I was, I was really privileged and lucky because I was able to study Fulani pastoralists in the northern part of Botswana. I was able to study um, two, uh, three, actually four different groups of um, farming peoples 
uh, who farmed at various intensities, and they were all in our study villages with the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics. So I was based at a research station, but I had these six villages, which myself and our economist, uh, was our rural economist, was, was gathering data on. We had um, a sample of villagers that we were following all the years that we were working there in terms of their inputs, you know, the amount of labor they put in, whether they used any fertilizers, how much, how fast were they adopting the Green Revolution techniques and technologies and, you know, fertilizer and all this insecticide and so on, and, and what it was doing, okay? Mm-hmm. And so it was a, like a dual purpose, and I had, I had a lot of fun, you know, like I, India was great because the institute was based in India, and so I got to visit, you know, the the big uh, research station just outside of Hyderabad. I got to go to the Hyderabad study villages, and you know, see see what what was going on there. I got to stay for a week or two in in Delhi between, you know, my because my flight was delayed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I, I just, it was, it was a really, really, you know, positive experience in some ways. Anyway, so. How did you, how did you square that with your sort of feeling that we should be doing more kind of the hunter-gatherer way, like a, like the Green Revolution? Because those seem to me like to be the two diametrically opposed uh, visions of the future that we have right now. You know, there's, uh, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean that's yeah. it. There's uh, Charles C. Mann's most recent book, which I highly recommend. Although it's gonna make you cry, I'm I'm warning you. It like it is a very kind of upsetting book because it it tears you in two. I mean, it's called The Wizard and the Prophet. Yes, and it's about uh, Charles Borlaug and William Voigt, and yeah. and he says very clearly at the beginning, he says, mm-hmm. "I'm I'm just gonna present these two different." visions and mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend that I know the answer. I find both of these visions extremely compelling and they make a lot of good points and I have no idea how to reconcile them. And so right. on the one hand there's the the void uh, vision which is sort of very similar to what you're saying saying we need to kind of go backwards. We need to work with the land, we need to go back, we need to uh, and then you have Borlaug who is the one of course who is pretty much single-handedly responsible for the green revolution he's the one who came up with the high yield crops and came up with the whole using uh, artificial fertilizers and he says you know he goes i've i've been agonizing writing this book for a long time and i have not heard any of the voidians and i i would i would guess you'd be a voidian he said i have not met one voidian that can sort of dispel this simple fact which is that uh, the estimates are that three out of every five humans on planet Earth right now are alive because of Norman Borlaug, because okay. of his agricultural techniques. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, here's here's a, a shocker for you. I actually met Norman Borlaug. No! And, really? Uh, he was an <laughs> That's he nuts! Project... Uh, uh, you know, with USAID, I think, if I remember, I, I, the details are fuzzy because this was like 20, 20 some years ago, but, but I met him and 
you know, we were there was some seminar. I can't even remember. It's all hazy in my mind because I was so tired. I'd just come back from one of the study villages, and he he told me two very interesting things. Well, first of all, I'll give you my impression of the man. Please do. Very very kind. He was very very troubled. Uh, he didn't. He loved children, and he didn't like to see. You know, he didn't like the 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 feeling that there were starving children in the world. Mm -hmm. He didn't see people be poor. He didn't want to see, you know, he called it the waste of human beings. You mm -hmm. know, to people who have inadequate nutrition, inadequate opportunities to shine. You know, everybody has something to contribute was one of the things he said. And he, he that was his life work, to make it possible for all these, you know, for people to survive their childhoods. The other thing he said was that, um, and by the way, I looked this up, and he actually said this in his Nobel acceptance pro, uh, speech as well. He said, all I did was give us time to get the population under control. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't met his daughter, who I guess is carrying on his work, and, and she's really a strong proponent of uh, genetically modified organisms, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and so on. And, and she's sort of carrying on. Uh, I guess there's an institute that he founded or something. But, but what he said to me, because our institute, the geneticists and plant breeders at ICRSAT, you know, the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Aerotropics is, is called by the name at ICRSAT. Anyway, what they said was that this was going to revolutionize everything because they could then see that they could put in into, you know, the main food crops in the semi-aerotropics greater drought tolerance. Mm -hmm. um, they could reduce the, what they call the verbiage, the... <laughs> The verb, no, the the veggie, the vegetation aspect, and have the plant just concentrate on producing new seeds. Yeah. You know, known from some very fast uh, developing desert plants that it's they don't. Well, anyway, it's a it's a long story, but we discussed it, and they were very optimistic. Uh, it was just beginning then. Nobody had ever, ever actually done it. Okay, when I was there, but you know, it didn't seem like at all a bad thing. You know, and then later on, years later, I heard about golden rice and some of the people I was still corresponding with at a sister institute called Erie, the International Rice Research Institute. Um, they were actually, you know, doing trials of this, and the the golden rice was supposed to supply um, missing vitamin A, and I guess they put some kind of, you know, maybe carrot. <laughs> carrot genetics or something into the into the rice and they turned it golden but they've never been able to release it because in the first place it 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 doesn't quite do it nutritionally like you can feed a person a lot of golden rice and the vitamin A isn't that available to their bodies it doesn't get digested in the way that they thought it would mm -hmm. it's a, you know all of our digestion is breakdown products right yeah Still not sure. I mean, I, I guess it's now been recognized in the United States as a potential type of rice and all the rest of it. But you see, the other thing that I remember one of the um, people at the institute saying to me he said, "Well, this is all very well, but the reason that people are deficient in vitamin A is because a lot of poor people don't have enough land 
to grow green leafy vegetables or you know the kinds of root crops that actually supply those nutrients the problem is poverty it's not that the rice is inadequate <laughs> poverty you know and so uh, I mean I, I had that sort of information rattling around in my brain for many many years without really articulating it but lately there's been a lot of fuss about GMOs you know and I think gosh you know if we could if we could uh, genetically manipulate uh, the chestnut tree, the North American chestnut tree, so it was no longer subject to the um, the onslaught of of the pest that that wiped mo most of them out. It would be really great, you know. There are lots of good things that could be done with it, but as a as a as as to saying you have to support GMOs, science, scientific agriculture will save the world, it will feed the world, we're not going to be doing it without this. That is hype. I'm sorry, because the main reason that people were not eating adequately and did not have enough food was poverty. That's what I found out in West Africa. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, I'm, I'm very skeptical of, of GMOs for a lot of the reasons that that you mentioned. I mean, I, I, I think GMOs in theory, mm -hmm. I, I think it could be a good idea. But when you have uh, companies like Monsanto, well, now Bayer, uh, when you have companies like that running the show, it's really hard to expect to have a just and reasonable result when you have such evil empire type people like, you know, making the decisions. But I, I do wrestle with this. And I, you know, definitely Charles yeah. Mann is, is is one of the uh, books that has sort of yeah. put this under me, but also Yuval Harari in his book, uh, Homo Deus, he talks about this a great deal. And he says, mm -hmm. uh, there are all sorts of areas in the world. I mean, let, let's take just Europe, for instance. Uh, if you look at the population of Scandinavia the, mm -hmm. or the population of, let's say, Ireland, right? It had a very low population density for a long time. And the people that were there were able to manage a pretty large territory, right? But then along comes the uh, the potato, right, which is brought over as part of the Colombian exchange. And this one crop, because it can produce just massive yields, made it possible for populations to explode in mm -hmm. places like Ireland and Finland and Sweden, uh, so you had you had population densities like you had never ever seen before mm -hmm. in that area, right? Mm -hmm. So now uh, those people, if you go and measure them, well, they're not very healthy, and they have these nutritional, uh, but mm -hmm. they're there because of this crop, right? So mm -hmm. you have if you have an advance in rice production or potato production or wheat production, it allows to have this huge population explosion but now those people are perhaps not getting as mm -hmm. good of a diet but what do you do with all of those people right what do you do with all those people now i mean i i asked uh, an environmentalist in an interview well, i was quite sort of shocked by the answer I, I said somebody who's a real sort of voitian you know um uh, said well what do we do with all these billions of people that we have i mean we can't all go back to the land and spread out. There's just too many of us, right? Yeah. So what do we do? And her response was, well, we need to just forcibly sterilize, you know, about 80 or 90% of the world's population. We have to decide sort of, we have to keep 
certain people based on certain criteria, and we have to drastically reduce the human population down to uh, below a billion by, I think uh, she said by like 2050 or something like that. And I just thought, okay, first of all, that that's sounding pretty creepy and Mm -hmm. middle 20th century ish. Uh, but also good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, like, how are you how are you going to? Why would any democracy go along with that? Well, first of all, who gets to be reproducing and who doesn't, right? That, that decision. And, and you just know that that's not going to be done on the basis of, you know, genetic quality or anything. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I mean, yeah. really. And then what else are you going to use? So, and, and the other thing is, is that we're going to, if, if that happens, then the genetic diversity, which is already very low in, in, in Homo sapiens as a species, right? Mm -hmm. That genetic diversity is going to be narrowed again. It's going to produce a, an artificial bottleneck. And for all you know, uh, the people who wind up being able to reproduce happen to carry a lot of deleterious, you know, chromosomes or, or alleles, which will uh, cause uh, genetic uh, uh, syndromes and so on to explode in the generations after that. We don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I don't, I guess what I'm getting at is that if, if we have a solution, right, uh, well, to go back to the original point about what uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb was talking about, how, and this is a main point in Anti-Fragile, and it's also a main point in his new book, Skin in the Game, that scale matters, right? You can't just, something that is true in a small town is not necessarily going to be true in a city, and something that's true of a city isn't necessarily going to be true of a nation state, that as you scale things up, some things that work when when a community is small just don't work anymore once it gets to a, a certain size. And I, I can even see that in a in a strange way right here in the middle of Montreal. If I'm walking in a big nature park in Montreal, there's a lot of them. They're very large parks in Montreal. And if I'm walking in a park and I pass somebody on the path, we will immediately make eye contact and say hello. Right. Mm -hmm. This is just it's automatic just because the density of humans in the park is low enough that we suddenly greet each other as fellow humans. Right. But I can pass that person, you know, 20 minutes later on the city streets and we would not make eye contact and say hello. Right. Mm -hmm. So even the exact same two people uh, mm -hmm. in this area, once you have you have a scaling issue. Right. So. If I guess my, my point is, is that if you're learning about humanity from small towns or from hunter gatherers or mm -hmm. from uh, or from families, right? Uh, to what extent is that knowledge useful in solving the problems that we have in mass societies? <laughs> I mean, do you think the solutions scale? I guess I'm saying. Well, yes and no. I think the density and scale. Uh, involves power laws, you know. In other words, it, it, there's a point where you reach a trigger where um, the kind of interactions that are possible in a low uh, population little village or, you know, hamlet or something, small community, um, 
become too costly for individuals. I mean, if everybody, everybody shopping at the Safeway or, you know, local uh, grocery store were to spend a bit of time, uh, you know, greeting each other, asking after each other's families, getting to know each other, nobody ever get anything done. That would be exhausting, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a people, uh, what we understand about human beings is that there's a there's a cost to maintaining our networks of relatives and friends and it's not just a time cost it's also a you know physical effort um, that's involved you expend energy having uh, conversations with people and you expend you know time and money and energy uh, socializing you know the coffee clutch the the dinner invitations the uh, the things that people really love to do, socialize, mm -hmm. we can't do it with every person we see. We have to, we've only got so many people that we could spend time with. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or we just run out of, you know, we can't like bother to take a shower or change our clothes. Or, <laughs> you know, yeah. Clean your house because we're so busy talking and socializing with everybody we meet that, you know, like, you have no life then. <laughs> right. So there's a, there's a, there's a kind of power law there. Okay, and it, it, it relates to scale and, and numbers of people. And of course, you probably know the research that was done <clears throat> um, some years ago, which indicated that everybody has uh, a certain number of friends and relatives in their network, individual network size. And there was a man <clears throat> in England, um, Robin Dunbar, who created what what it, what we now call Dunbar's number, and that's something under 200. The the sort of average is about 150. Okay. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these networks, you know, they involve an inner circle, a real good buds that you talk to all the time, and that can change, you know, in 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 seasonally seasonally like there are times when you talk a lot to your students and then you may never see them again right mm -hmm. at the time they're in your network you know who they are you know their stories you you spend a lot of energy and effort on them and often those relationships will persist in the sense that if that student comes back in 10 years time you will make the effort to have dinner with them and talk to them for maybe even days yeah you know and and this is this this is true of relatives and friends as well, but there's a kind of upper limit to how many people you can have in that inner, you know, mm -hmm. circle and spend time with from week in week out, and how many people you can kind of keep track of over the course of say a ten year period, it, well enough to to remember to phone them on their birthday, maybe send them a present on Christmas, or at least you know send them a Christmas card <laughs> and, so yeah. and 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 they and the thing is that I don't you know I don't know what Dunbar is doing now but I can imagine that he's probably looking at overlapping networks in other words we have networks each individual person that I know anyways has a network network of friends and family which persist most of their lives you know, they, like I, for instance, I have a friend that I knew in high school, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Her name's Mary Jane. 
she used to be Mary Jane Hodder, I think, and now she's Mary Jane St. Ange, and she still lives near North Bay. She has a number of children, and believe it or not, one of her children is a professor at Nipissing College, and what he writes about and works on, his name is Jeremy St. Ange, he, he does permaculture and ecological, you know, um, uh, kind of an ecological futurism to you know how are we going to adapt when when things change because they are going to change with you know uh, the uh, uh, impending um, crises that are looming before us it's not just population it's it's the system of agriculture it's the rate of species extinction it's the um, uh, the the, the amount of soil that is being destroyed by our present system of, of mechanical, you know, agriculture that the Green Revolution ushered in. Mm-hmm. You know, the their estimates now among soil scientists is that we've got at most another 50 years, 60 years before the kind of agriculture we're doing now is going to just not be possible anymore because there won't be enough soil left. Yeah. That's great the rates of dust. Yeah, no, I mean, he taught... He- he lays all of these facts out in that book, The Wizard and the Prophet, and he says, basically, yep. we've been playing this this game of uh, kind of like an arms race where every mm-hmm. time it looks like we're about to go off the cliff, there's a, a brand new invention which yep. sort of vastly sort of extends, right? So one of the things he does in in the book is he he looks at all of these environmental apocalypse books that came out mm-hmm. in the 1960s and 70s and how, you know, we're not going to make it to 1990 and we're not. And he explains precisely why they were wrong. And mm-hmm. he says the, the main reason why they were wrong is that we have again and again, you know, we're like very smart little critters, you know, like we, we've come up with new inventions which have sort of forestalled the the seemingly inevitable. But he says at this point, we're we're really out of tricks. And mm-hmm. there's like some there's some really kind of big problems that we're heading towards. And he said, everybody I've spoken to at hardcore sort of Borlogians who they're the wizards. They really think we can sort of invent our way out of a- any problem, right? Uh, the wizards were tell that he interviewed were saying we really, we got nothing. We got nothing. We're freaking out. You know, like, yeah. yeah. So you think well, this guy says permaculture is is the way of to get around this? Let's put it this way. Um, I I'm just going to back us up here for a minute. When we look at the human story, okay, a lot of people don't ground that within nature. They don't ground our existence within the natural ecosystem of this planet. There's an artificial divide, that a lot, kind of a dualism that people have in their heads. And you see this with E.O. Wilson's suggestion that you know the, the human world gets sort of cut off and leaves the rest of the world to nature. You get it with people who want to put every human in cities, right, where it's very efficient because you can bring in food and distribute it without any more further transport, you know, all this kind of stuff. I can see the the the, um, the efficiencies of scale um, making um, larger and larger companies more efficient. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. More economical, okay? So that you actually spend less money getting a peach on your dinner table and, you know, the, the whole 
the peaches cheaper if it's brought to you by a large international agricultural firm that has, you know, plantations all over the world and can get you the peaches at the at the best time in a timely fashion with all this transport and everything. Yes, but we leave out a huge cost. Okay? And that cost is to the ecosystems that support this population of humans on this planet. We almost think, you know, some of the so-called wizards, I think, I, in fact, come to think of it, I'm going to, here's another aside, I guess when I went to West Africa to work for Green Revolution Institute, it was wizard culture that I wanted to understand. <laughs> so you were being an anthropologist among the yeah, Green Revolution like, wizards, yeah. A big part of what I learned, you know. Yeah. Tell you one thing about wizard culture. They are like Norman Borlaug. I didn't meet anybody at Icarusat who was an evil person or even a, a hippo, hip, hypocrite or a, you know, a person who was mostly concerned about you know, making their own name and stuff. Most of these people were immensely sincere and genuine in their efforts to do something about poverty and, and hunger. Okay. Yeah. Then I'll tell you something else. I don't. I don't even think that the people at places like Bear and Monsanto, most of the people who are researching in those institutions, those corporations, you know, like the labs that they have for you know GMOs and all the rest of it. I don't think those people are evil either. I think what it is is it's an evil machinery. It's an evil infrastructure, because it assumes a paradigm, which is inaccurate. Okay, and that paradigm is that we can we can impose another nature that is just a human controlled mechanical system that is going to be separate from the world's natural ecosystems and that that will that will take care of our problems and it it i I don't think that's productive in the long run. I think that's why we're dealing with this rate of species extinction, we're dealing with this rate of soil loss, we're dealing with um, a lot of other problems. And, and you know, the, the ecological perspective that sees humans as part of nature, as embedded in nature, is much more complex, it's much more difficult to get a handle on, you know, for your average person. Uh, it's much easier to go, okay, we can solve this problem of vitamin <laughs> vitamin A deficiency <laughs> with a type of rice that it has, you know. I mean, that's a kind of very straight line, you know. But, but in fact, nature isn't like that. Our ecosystem isn't like that. And even the definition of the problem is too simple. It's too linear. Okay? Yeah. And so when when you situate humanity within the planetary ecosystem and you see us for what we are we are a keystone species okay we create the very ecosystems that support us when we're hunter-gatherers we do it when we're farmers we do it even when we're people who live in cities we're doing it the only thing is that we haven't had time to learn how to do high-density stuff without hurting the ecosystem. And I don't have like a 100% answer to that either. <laughs> I do know one thing, and that is that what I observed in the, the, uh, the kind of farming that was being done 
traditionally in um, parts of you know these parts of Africa that that Ikrasat was trying to help. That farming was not failing. That system was not failing. And these, you know, the Mossy Plateau in Burkina Faso is quite heavily populated. They're a traditional tribal chiefdom. They have a paramount chief, the Mohanaba, okay? And there's millions of people there. But yet, you know, um, when you try to figure out what's causing um, starvation periodically, it's the breakdown of social uh, risk management systems, okay? And why is that breaking down? Because the, 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 the land and effort that used to be allocated to producing a surplus which was centrally stored as, against a hard drought season or something, mm -hmm. surpluses are now being, gener are being used to generate other kinds of crops like uh, uh, bananas or peanuts or something like that that can be, and cotton is a big one, that can be sold internationally. And you can only, like if, you, if, you're, if you've lived for, you know, a thousand years as a small farming community where you're using out of maybe 350 acres uh, in the village territory, you're using uh, 10 acres or 20 acres a year you know, 20%, no, that'd be, sorry, that was too low. So, so say, uh, you know, 50 acres, right? You're using about 20% of your village territory to produce food. That means, just in the terms of the realities of secondary growth, that when, you, when your land becomes infertile because of the nutrients that are taken out and, and eaten by you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, when that land becomes too infertile to give much yield, you abandon it. You, it's a long fallow system, so it returns to the commons. Mm -hmm. okay? And what happens then is that the the grasses move in. You know, first the annual pioneering plants, grasses and little bushes and stuff, and then the the, the bigger bushes that are that are uh, that are uh, perennials come in. The perennial grasses come in, and small pioneering trees come in. You know, and among these are small acacia and legume trees because they fix nitrogen naturally and they can restore fertility naturally. Okay, and all of these plants are seen as um, uh, good by these people and they leave them alone. What we do is we call them weeds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so we don't even let them get to the point where they're restoring much because we spray them and stuff. But anyway, so when we have a lot of weed invasion on a field that's been cultivated for 20 years, that's a sign that it's not just nitrogen. There are other nutrients that do not favor the plant you're, you're trying to make into a crop, but do favor dandelions or some of these deeper rooted species of weeds, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, or, or the fast-growing, um, uh, fleshy types of weeds like um, uh, pigweed, and uh, which is a type of amaranth, I guess. And and uh, what's the other one that's so common? Uh, lamb's quarters. You know, you see those all over the agricultural areas as weeds. And there's a whole bunch of other species as well, but those are some of the main ones. 
And those, those plants do really, really well in competition with our food crops because they require future nu fewer nutrients and they grow really fast. And in the case of legumes, you know, wild legumes, they actually have uh, a nitrogen-fixing quality. Why do you think alfalfa is such a main crop for fodder? It's mm -hmm. because it's legume. Yeah. It's, what's interesting is with crops like that and plants like that is that very often, uh, once the land recovers, mm -hmm. those plants are gone. Like yeah. they, they basically, yeah. they survive and they thrive on distressed soils, on distressed <laughs> land. Like, I, I mean, the classic example right here in, that I see all the time in Montreal is one of my favorite plants is greater burdock. It's a absolute, oh, yeah. yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous plant. And uh, they grow on distressed land yeah. and they put down incredibly deep roots. They bring up all sorts of minerals that mm -hmm. that pretty much nothing else uh, would be able to go that far down except for maybe trees. And they produce a phenomenal amount of nectar. And like for all this stuff, like one two or three-year-old greater burdock plant can my calculations from observing them sometimes for hours and hours and hours is I think they produce enough food to support an entire beehive. It's mm -hmm. that productive, right? Yeah. And so they and they end up enriching the soils like crazy. And then, but as the forest comes back, suddenly the burdock is all gone. It just yeah. can't grow. And so this is why I, you know, I got into a real argument with this very Voitian. Uh, environmental group here in Montreal that uh, they call themselves Friends of the Mountain. And they, on a regular basis, they've got a real hate on for invasive species, right? They have this idea that whatever that was there first is the only thing that belongs there. And they would go around Mount Royal Park and rip up all this greater burdock and burn it because yeah. they said it's an invasive species. When in yeah. fact, it really helps the native species like yeah. crazy it replenishes the soils and then as soon as the native species are big enough it's gone i mean it just like well people, people no. consider it a weed and a weed is a plant that you can't uh you can't exploit commommercially that <laughs> <laughs> doesn't look good yeah it's like what is it mary douglas her her wonderful description of dirt it's matter out of place so yeah. i we could sort of uh, we could take that and say that well a weed is basically a plant out of place right it's like mm -hmm. something it's not doing what you want it to do right mm -hmm. well people have also this vision of um order right mm -hmm. order thing with landscapers and to have a natural uh ecosystem succession community is very messy <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, when, when you see old farms that are growing back, you know, that people have kind of, uh, in some cases, there's a there's actually a couple in England who have like 3,000 3, acres or something, and they just let everything grow back. Wow. They cultivating. And what's amazing there is that all these insects and songbirds and all kinds of other wildlife is now just burgeoning on this property but all the surrounding farmers are pissed off because they find it untidy <laughs> oh it's it's more than just untidy i know a friend of mine is uh lives in farming area in southwestern quebec and there's a lot of apple orchards there mm -hmm. and he said it's 
it's really, really annoying when you have one orchard that decides they're going to go organic and they're not going to use any pesticides or herbicides or anything because that one farm uh, suddenly becomes a a hotbed for you know, tons and tons of uh, pesticides and things like that, like mm -hmm. get, start to proliferate on that particular plot of land. And then that means that all the people around that person end up having to use way more pesticides and herbicides than they normally would because they are uh, the he I it was very shocking to me I, I never thought of I always thought of organic farmers as these just 100 percent good thing you know like and he said no actually they're freeloaders they're total like it's it's the free rider problem it's the, he said organic farmers are sort of like hippie pacifists right you're benefiting from the order provided by the like the outer structure like you wouldn't be able to do that in northern mexico you know a little out of juarez you wouldn't be able to have like a hippie pacifist commune there where there's like armed thugs going around on a regular basis so you're basically benefiting from the order provided by the structure yeah. and so i said well is it is it always that way and he said well not always but uh, it it requires like a recovery time. So basically, he, he gave me an example. He said in, in Vermont, there's places where they have a bunch of organic farms all together. Mm -hmm. And essentially, they have exactly what you're saying. There, there's this intermediate period, which can be, you know, five, five years. It could even be 10 years where it's really ugly <laughs> and you mm -hmm. get low yields. But eventually... Uh, not only is the area recolonized by all the pests, it's recolonized by the things that eat the pests. Exactly. And that's when things calm down. But, it, you know, you got to make sure you're not bankrupt by then. Yeah. Well, you see, your point about bankruptcy or his point about bankruptcy is actually key because most farms now are commercial. They're businesses. Okay. And the whole point of having an apple orchard is to have enough apples to sell. And all the apple orchards that you know uh, are controlling their weeds and their bugs and everything else—they're trying to maximize the number of unblemished, you know, unwormy mm -hmm. <laughs> that they're bringing to market. Because otherwise, their profits are going to go down, and they may lose their farm, right? And that's a different kind of farming from subsistence farming. It yeah. really, you know, because in in the the people that I I was describing when when they let their land go fallow and everything grew back and secondary growth happened, right? What what happened was that they just let it it became part of the commons. They were able to graze their goats and cattle there. Um, some of the secondary growth plants were productive of berries and nuts, and so people would go there and gather. Um, as the secondary growth went through its stages. You know, and these these landscapes would be left unt not untouched, but uncultivated, uncleared, for up to thirty five years. Wow. Oh yes, that's what yeah. they mean. Long fallow. <laughs> At the end of that period, you have climax species coming in, young trees of various kinds, which are characteristic of a climax community. Yeah, like beech trees oh. and things like that. Yeah. And what happens? What happens um, is that the the climax community. I don't know if you know this, but most uh, ecologists have have often described climax forest as a biological desert. 
<laughs> I haven't heard that before. All of the all of the all of the nutrients, a lot of the carbon, is is bound up in these huge long-lived trees. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've definitely noticed that in places where it's really obvious. Like if you go to the pine barrens yeah. in um, in New Jersey, or actually, basically, mm -hmm. the pine barrens that exist in that wide swath all the way down to North Carolina, actually, you can see, I mean, there it's, it's, it's very obvious because these pine trees, they have literally poisoned the soil. They've yep. acidified the soil so much that they're the, basically the only thing that can live in it. And this soil has become just this, you know, there's like some ferns and stuff like that. But, and so the, the biodiversity in those pine barrens is, is quite low. So no, I, I can see what you're talking about. So, you know, what happens is that, you know, trees, each individual tree just wants to live long and prosper. lots <laughs> <laughs> of baby trees, right? And so, you know, what they, what they benefit are the kinds of birds and to some extent small mammals, like some of these little leaping primates that will eat their seeds and distribute them just like the giraffes do, right, uh, far away. Because uh, uh, seeds that drop right under the parent tree, particularly if it's a well-developed tree and it's older, they have very little chance of ever growing into anything. So the 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 tree, these kinds of canopy canopy forests, will uh, have a biomass of the kinds of species of birds and primates, and I guess insects too that that benefit and interact with their own ecology in a beneficial way mm -hmm. but, but um, the messy stages before you get to climax have far more species diversity they have far more shall we say clever strategies to get their fruits eaten and taken away because <laughs> they're in competition mm -hmm. with a lot of others that are trying to do the same thing and because they're they're pioneering species the whole point is that they're less long-lived so they put a lot more effort into uh, or you know plant energy or whatever plants do into um, into reproducing successfully so they have a lot more fruit they have a lot more nuts they have you know a very high proportion of um, matter like uh, energy invested in their seeds because they want animals to come and eat those and take them away yeah <laughs> so so um, it's in secondary growth that you get that you get uh, grapes, that you get plums and 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 apricots and you know oranges and mangoes and and all these you know papayas, all these really really interesting tropical fruits. Banana, banana is a is a pioneering species. Yeah, this completely fits with your original point about. Yeah. Um, that we didn't necessarily hunt the megafauna to death, that we just, we altered the environment from a old growth yeah. forests and old growth yeah. so much that these things just were, they didn't, I mean, it, what we do is not entirely dissimilar to what I've seen beavers do. I mean, I, I've seen in a big plot of land that I knew very, very well, like knew like the back of my hand, a mm -hmm. farm and a friend of mine, she decided she was just going to, let she's a you know a very good friend of david suzuki's actually she's written a number of books with him and she decided she was going to just let a lot of her land um go wild you know exactly mm -hmm. the way david said should happen 
And immediately what happened is some beavers came in and they dammed up some little streams. And it's just phenomenal. I don't think there's anything other than humans that can, that I, any other animal that can alter a landscape uh, quite. Uh, beavers are just unbelievable. So the whole area is flooded. And immediately all of these, you know, just hundreds of trees die. And they're mm-hmm. just like these sort of gray skeletons sitting mm-hmm. in this stagnant mosquito-filled water. And mm-hmm. so the trees all die. And all these species that were there on the farm that you would see on a regular basis, suddenly you're not seeing them anymore. But mm-hmm. you're getting all these new species. All these birds are coming in, all these frogs, all these salamanders, all these you know, mm-hmm. martins, and all these different things are coming in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you... And the beavers are doing that. They're altering the landscape precisely because it's more congenial to them, right? So we're, we're kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, beavers uh, really eat secondary growth plants. So they're setting the succession back. They're killing off the older growth forest and producing a lot of swamp and extra flooding because that promotes things like willow and and birch and and a lot of these species that live around water you know which they really like <laughs> they're farming the landscape they're permaculturing the landscape right so yeah i know but you know the the immediate effect <clears throat> of a hunter gatherer i've seen this in the kalahari the immediate effect that you feel when you see an area of like you know a half a mile square that has just been recently burned Okay, is total def- devastation. I mean, <laughs> it's horrible. Right? You just think, oh my God, how could they do this? Yeah. Right? And then two weeks later, even if it hasn't rained, one of the most amazing things that happens is the grass gets has this flush of growth. The roots, you know, the permanent grasses. They're 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 called C4 grasses. They have another kind of metabolism, and most of them are form these permanent tussocks, right? Um, and they're very prolific, and they just, uh, they green the whole thing. The whole landscape suddenly turns emerald, and this is without rain. Wow. And so then the wildlife responds to this. They, they, you know, go there specifically to graze on all this new growth, which has been flushed out by the fire. Well, of course, the fire also releases nutrients, you know, because it, a lot of carbon goes into the soil, a lot of the nitrogen that's been tied up in plant uh, wood and, uh, gr- you know, withered grass and stuff. That all, that all gets, uh, not all, some of it, of course, goes up in smoke. <laughs> but but uh, there's a flush of nutrients, a flush of new growth, and that attracts animals. There are species like the um, sable antelope, <clears throat> for instance, that actually seek out recent burned areas because they like to have their calves there because the little calves lying among a lot of burned vegetation and you know uh, uh, carbon car- uh, carbonated like ash and stuff they don't their their smell is completely completely covered wow it's susceptible to predators and they blend right in with the uh, with the the burned vegetation they're quite dark when they're born and so you know and that's one of the reasons they're sable antelopes you know they're dark animals so the whole herd can actually lie down and uh, uh, have a siesta on a burned patch and you can barely see them that's amazing 
among all the sticks and everything and all the, the, the piles of blackened ash and, and charcoal. And so, you know, uh, there's also the fact that animals come to lick the ash because there's nutrients in ash that they need. Salt, you know, various kinds of mineral salts and so on. And so when you're a hunter-gatherer and you want to produce an, 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 an ecosystem that has a lot of diversity that is like a mosaic of recent cleared areas like these burned patches and um, various kinds of secondary growth that where everything's growing back from that, that charred condition and some areas in climax and some areas in advanced secondary growth where it's like a dense woodland and you produce a mosaic of that and all of a sudden you've got a much higher diversity of different species of animals, insects and plants in your range, you know, wild. and you find more <laughs> gather, you have more opportunities to hunt medium-sized animals, you know, and you also increase the kind of health of the environment because you've got, first of all, the diversity, but secondly, what that does is it brings in a lot of predators who have an easier time because they've got a lot of species that they can hunt, and that increases the health of the animals. Do you know, just as a, I'm going to put another footnote on here. Right now in North America, there's a great big panic among wildlife biologists over the onset, which <clears throat> started over 20 years ago, of something which is like BSE. It's a prion disease that <clears throat> causes chronic wasting of deer. And it's affecting mostly whitetail, but it also affects elk, you know, wapiti. Uh -huh. And it Moose. Okay. Now, there's in the Midwest. There are several big patches where it would actually be really stupid to go and hunt for venison because it has these prion diseases, and we don't know. I mean, right now, a lot of wildlife people are saying, "No, no, it's safe to eat. We won't get it." But they also said that about, you know, adding a, a scrapey, scrapey infected sheep, which have a prion disease, to the uh, feed. You know, the cooking them up and adding them to the food. That's how you got mad cow disease. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we don't know. Like prions, prions occur naturally in our brains. They're part of our our brain communication and scaffolding system and everything. And <clears throat> they're a they're a protein basically. They're a protein that should be always folded a certain way. And when they're folded the wrong way, they cause a disease. They yeah. can destroy the brain. They can destroy your nervous system. And <clears throat> that's what these people who died of BSE uh, diseases, you know, wasting diseases in England had, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I haven't seen that in North America related to the deer, but it still, it gives one pause. Well, here's the interesting thing about that. Predators like cougar and wolves are not susceptible to this. They, they've, been, they've been predators for so many millions of years that they've developed some way of, you know, preventing misfolded proteins from getting, you know, reintegrated into their system or something. Who knows? Well, they, I guess they could, they basically, uh, they with, the, with the higher acidity within their stomachs, they probably can digest them. We don't know. In any event, when you have enough predators in among this <clears throat> population of, of, of deer, that are affected by prion diseases, the predators differentially take the sick animals out. 
Wow. Okay. Now, there's another thing that's been noticed about uh, prion diseases, and that is that there's a higher amount of magnesium. Is it mag yeah, it's magnesium, I think, compared to copper ions in the soils and in the folded protein. Okay. What that means is that the, the protein molecule will prefer to have a copper molecule, and it'll fold the right way. But if it doesn't have a hot copper, and if it can easily find a magnesium molecule instead, or atom instead, it'll take that, but it'll fold it the wrong way. That's exactly like lead poisoning in in poor neighborhoods, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because if if a kid is um, getting proper nutrition, they're eating like lots of raw broccoli and lots of things like that. There are other there are other minerals which will bond, and they, yeah. and that that place will basically be taken and so even yeah. if the kid does eat some yeah. lead paint the vast majority of it is just going to pass right through their body it's mm -hmm. actually it's the uh, malnutritioned kids who are living off of twinkies or something like that that <laughs> if they have the the paint because they're missing that mineral it will bond and that's where you get all the damage that is fascinating so this is like a very broad problem in the animal world yeah. yeah, and so you see, if if human beings, you know, say you're a hunter-gatherer, and say that you you promote this kind of ecological mosaic, right, with all these different species, you're not going to be differentially going out and shooting the pine martens and the raccoons and the coyotes and the wolves and the foxes and the the other little predators that that kill smaller things. You're not going to be shooting the wolves and the bears that are preying on the, or the big cats, the cougars, that are preying on your deer. Because if you do that, you wind up with more sick deer. Hmm. And the, the thing that's really interesting about this is, believe it or not, Farley Mowat, when he wrote The People of the Deer, and he <laughs> knew it about I that. I read that when I was a kid. Yeah. They told him that. They said that the, the wolves husband the deer that the you know the the pre predators were necessary to keep the deer healthy that's yeah, wild yeah, yeah yeah i know but a lot of things that science and you know in-depth honest even ethnographic work like i did i think show us is that there's a deep ecological complexity partly understood by people who've lived in the landscape a long long time Right. Yeah. Okay. So when you look at what that old lady told me about the giraffe, right? There are generations, probably thousands of generations of observation and discussion, hypothesis forming, you know, further observation, arguments, backing that information up. She is a product of a long history with that piece of megafauna, and she has. You know, her views are backed up by all kinds of memes, you know, of like proverbs and stories and the fact that the animal is considered sacred and you don't hunt them on purpose, right? Yeah. Those kinds of things. And so when you look at the sacred animals that we have uh, in other places, like why, for instance, do the, did the Plains Indian consider the bison sacred? Mm-hmm. Okay, now listen to this. There's a guy, Wes Olson, who's a who used to run. Uh, he used to manage the Elk Island 
um, uh, uh, game park or uh, here in, uh, to the west of Edmonton and looking after all the bison there. That's one of the last pure herds of bison left in North America. He was also instrumental in uh, helping the Saskatchewan Grassland National Park reintroduce bison there. And he now lives in Saskatchewan. He's retired now. Well, you know what he says? He says that bison are a keystone species. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I would have I would have been blown away by that if it wasn't for the fact that uh, Charles C. Mann already let the cat out of the bag in 1491. He he explains precisely how the bison were uh, and how they were actually the sort of indigenous people of the Americas. They opened up through burning and other things. They opened up all sorts of land to the bison to deliberately to expand their range. So mm -hmm. that they would be, so that the bison were uh, extended all the way into New York State, yeah. right, places where they had not been before, and this was all done by burning and actively encouraging them to come, so that they could easily get to them when they wanted to eat them, <laughs> like farming them, basically. I know exactly. Well, the thing is that if you look at the this data long enough, you eventually realize that the domestication of a number of species of what we now consider livestock and so on, I, the dog is a whole other story, but anyway, um, that that's just a continuation of the same kind of ecological in engineering and management. It's an intensification. It's not a brand new thing mm -hmm. because of density, because human beings were living more densely, they were exploiting more uh, intently, intensely, the areas where they had to get their material from, and as a result, they had to manage more carefully. And when you manage more carefully, that usually means you spend a lot more time with these animals, right? <laughs> Spending a lot more time, you know, with a with a with the local herd of uh, of sheep or or cows, you know, wild cattle, mastors, whatever. Yeah. Who are you going to get rid of in that herd? Who is going to be, you know, the the target when you go to hunt one? It's going to be the big, aggressive, dangerous bull, right? Or the most the most dastardly, nasty cow, the one that killed your kid last year, yeah, when just innocently sitting beside you and you'd gone to sleep, or whatever. You know, you're going to get rid of the most aggressive, right? Getting rid of you know, many, many generations of getting rid of really, really aggressive individuals out of a population of animals reduces certain um, gene frequencies that are associated with parts of the um, regulatory mechanism of fetal growth that we call, um, I can't remember the name of it now, it's the neural crest, okay? Um, it turns out that the adrenal gland um, pigment, melanin production in the body and uh, gut cells and pigment that that is on the, the fur and on the skin, these are all part of a similar gene complex that is in the fetal development stage, very, very important in the animal's, you know, uh, development as a, as a baby cow or <laughs> whatever. All domestic species of animals show a reduction in the reactivity of the adrenal flight-fight reflex. Mm -hmm. But this has costs. 
because what it means is that these animals will also show a reduction in pigmentation. That's why you get spotted, you know, spotted uh, uh, domestic animals rather and solid color wild ones usually. Um, it also causes a reduction in um, cartilage, bone cartilage. This is why a lot of domestic animals have, you know, floppy tails and ears and and uh, are not as fast and as as tough as the wild species in the same kind of environment. Uh, you get a, um, a reduction in um, uh, gut cell uh, metabolism. You know, I, I'm not sure exactly all the details because I'm not a, a microbiologist of the gut. <laughs> but <laughs> but apparently, for instance, you know, on, on some of the ranches in North America, they're favoring spotted, like piebald, and pure white um, versions of white-tailed deer, but it turns out that these animals are much have a much higher mortality because they have they are very susceptible to bloat and uh, gut diseases and and diseases where they can't they can't digest certain foods and so on. I'm not sure all the details, but they they have it it, it introduces a kind of weakness into their bone structure and into their gut. And of course, they're much more susceptible to um, heat, uh, or rather, sun sunlight exposure. You know, they get burns on their skin. Yeah, like I'll be. Well, this is all sort of an extension of uh, what was his name? It's like Dmitry Belayev, the the Soviet. Who did the fox? Experiment. Yeah, who did the fox? Where he showed how you could like domesticate foxes, and what was mm -hmm. it like? Like twenty generations by just selecting for the animals that were. Uh, more docile that were not not very afraid of humans and not very aggressive and you would just select for those and you could take a wild fox and turn it into a domesticated right. basically lap dog you know There's very quickly a book uh, how to tame a fox and build a dog right and that's book is very widely oh, i haven't read that story yeah. you know and it's it, it it you know the floppy ears the waggy curly tails to change the dappled in appearance exactly like you said they yeah like these wild foxes that were uniformly black suddenly got white spots and things like that yeah. so you know th that process follows from selection for an animal that's not going to deliberately either be very very frightened of you and be impossible to manage to watch because it it reacts or very very aggressive towards you you know the flight fight reflex is modified in these animals and so you know that that gives a different sort of you, you present uh, the what I call the anthroecology of of humans since the beginning of the Holocene uh, particularly involving domestication and much much closer management of domesticated breeds to form the basis of food staples that emerges absolutely predictably from more and more sedentism and more and more dense settlement yeah i'm gonna we're, we're definitely gonna have to talk at least one or two more times because there's so many questions that i wanted to ask you that yeah. we didn't even have a chance to get to but i want to finish with this uh, sort of anecdote and and just okay. tell you how see how you would respond to this so um recently we elected this very sort of environmentally conscious green government here in our neighborhood in Montreal, in Plateau Montréal, uh, called Projet Montréal. And mm -hmm. one of the things that they've done is they've just 
planted so many like corners like on like for instance on the corner of our street where Laval Avenue meets uh, Roy Street they extended the corners and yeah. just planted huge amounts of like uh, flowers and plants and things like that they've just greened up this neighborhood like crazy <laughs> and it's it's very very beautiful uh, but so something happened the other day so I'm I'm just walking to the corner store to get some milk or something like that and I look over and there's this guy and he's like cutting these yellow, beautiful flowers. These, uh, I guess they were some kind of lily or something like that. He's cutting them and putting them inside a bag. Mm-hmm. And I'm staring at him and I said like, like, what are you doing? You know, like, and he said, oh, I'm just collecting them uh, to eat. And I said, um, are you you know are you like hungry and he's like no and so i was i was really irked by this because on the one end but i was also kind of confused because on the one hand like i i like the idea of having edible landscapes and i i like the idea of permaculture and i definitely go into nature parks in montreal and i eat sometimes uh, there's black raspberries all over the place uh, mm-hmm. and i eat tons of them you know and they're all over the place yeah. Uh, so and I but I just I'm not collecting them and bringing them home. I'm just eating them as I like I'm grazing basically as I walk around. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so this guy's like collecting these flowers and he said, do you have a problem with that? I said, yeah, I kind of do. Um, because I figure, you know, like we pay all of these taxes to mm-hmm. this uh, to this municipality and mm-hmm. to this borough. And we, we pay a lot of taxes here and these taxes are going into planting all of these plants, which are reducing the amount of city heat and they're pretty and they you know they're doing doing all these things and this guy's like collecting them and he said to me he's like well look i'm only taking like five percent of the flowers from Mm -hmm. every every corner but he was going all over the neighborhood and collecting these and he said i'm just getting them to put into salads and things like that so I, I I walked away and I was kind of grumpy and so I actually like I called I called the producer of the podcast Sebastian and I said Sebastian what do you think about this and I sent him a, I took a picture of the guy doing it and I said to I sent Sebastian a picture and I said like I'm really pissed off about this and he said yeah that's like that's ridiculous he's like what if you know what if everybody did that you know like so then I was kind of wrestling with this yeah. and then sure enough about. I don't know, an hour later, I'm mm-hmm. walking by uh, Centre Paul Roulant, which is a really wonderful place in our neighborhood. And who do I see at a stand selling these things? It's With the gone. same guy. Yeah. And he's got them and he's like selling a bunch of stuff and he's selling these these flowers. And I was so, so angry. And then mm-hmm. I went home and I told Aunt Elisa and she was like, she's all into like urban agriculture. And, mm-hmm. and she said, well, <laughs> she's like, well, we kind of want people to... And I said, but think about it. With the population density mm-hmm. that we have in Plateau Moria, this is the most densely populated electoral district in yeah. Canada. So yeah. if if everybody were on their way home from work to just clip, let's say, four or five of those flowers because they want to have some nice flowers on their in a vase on their table, mm-hmm. there would be no flowers by the end of the day. Like they'd be all gone, right? So, and this guy, if he's collecting them to put in salads or to sell, you know, if everybody does that, or even a, not very many people do that, 
they're all going to be gone for everybody, right? And this seems to me to be fundamentally a scaling problem, yeah, right? Because if you had a smaller community in the Kalahari or in some small town, uh, you know, in, in rural Alberta or, you know, whatever, then having people graze these things the way I graze the wild black raspberries when I'm in the large nature parks, it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right. So I I just wonder, and this is the, f- you know, fundamental question that, you know, the whole Borlaug and Voigt opposition is, you know, you have found all of these beautiful and we have not even begun to exhaust all the things that I want to talk to you about your field mm-hmm. experience. But uh, you've discovered all these beautiful things about what humans can do based on what they are doing in the Kalahari. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering it, is this so much a scaling problem that there's not really anything that you learned there that is going to be of practical? I mean, it, it's interesting. It's fascinating to know what the possibilities of the human species are. But it, will any of this stuff be of use to Plateau Montreal in Montreal? Oh, Back yes, on. absolutely. But to to find the useful things, you're going to have to go to a different level of... Uh, hello? Yep, I'm in there. A different level of, uh, of research and we can talk about that next time there's a woman called Eleanor Ostrom who, who did this kind of research and there's also a person called um, Robert McNeish I have to uh-huh. answer okay phone. yeah and so can we talk about that next time absolutely yeah okay I'll see you then all right I'm- take care <laughs> okay, Bye for bye. now